Imagine that you're walking around a city and every path that you take is dictated entirely by where curb cutouts are placed. Or if your brain was wired differently and every email you had to send was this daunting task. Both of these systems, sidewalks and email clients, were designed for quote, the average user, a term used to describe when a product is good enough for most people's needs. But in this world of scalable personalization and AI-generated insights, it's time to rethink the very idea of designing for the middle and be open to the influence of the often invisible needs of our stakeholders. At our spring seminar this year, we were joined by Emily Goodson, a writer, entrepreneur, and workplace culture consultant whose disability has given her valuable insight into living life in a world designed for the average user. In this episode, we bring you Emily's moving and insightful talk, helping you to use your influence to make life easier for some stakeholders whose needs aren't as clearly seen as others. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is The New CCO. Rivet360 has been working with Paige to bring you The New CCO for more than six years. And that goes way beyond just editing and production. They're true thought partners, helping us develop our show's unique voice and identity, brainstorm ideas, and tell, well, riveting stories. To me, that's what makes them and our show so special. They're storytellers, first and foremost. And as communicators, I know we can all appreciate the value of a story well told. So if you're thinking about launching a podcast, or you have one that needs some fresh ideas, visit rivet360.com to book a free consultation. So I wanted to start with a very juicy story of how I moved to Southern California a few years ago from DC. And I moved to Southern California to start my workplace culture consulting business. But that is not the juicy part. <laughs> the juicy part is I moved to LA knowing one person. And I moved into this really cute bungalow by the beach, just like you see in the movies. And about a month there, I fell in love with this great guy who I was certain felt the same way about me. Right here, Emily shares a photo of NBA star Chris Paul. The guy I fell in love with was not the NBA star Chris Paul. That would have been really juicy, right? That would have made your Friday. <laughs> it was not Chris Paul. Um, but Chris and I went to college together at Wake Forest. And I have been a big fan of his ever since he used to dominate against Duke and Chapel Hill back in the day. On this particular night, though, that I want to talk to you about, um, Chris was playing in game five of the NBA Finals for the Phoenix Suns. And I was uh, at this party with my crush. We were on a couch outside watching the game. And the game starts to wind down. Unfortunately, the Suns are losing. <laughs> and uh, I start to open up to this guy. This is the first time we'd met each other, or the first time we'd hung out. And I start to open up about my physical disability. And I start to open up about having a brain injury as a little girl. And I got a question from my crush that I had never gotten before. And the question was, had I ever felt like a victim of my disability? And I took a deep breath, and I bit my lip, and I looked down. And at that moment, I decided to push away all of the fear and be honest with this guy who, I'll admit, I wanted to influence in a very certain direction, <laughs> but I still managed to be honest with him. 
And I told him, I said, you know, I've never felt like a victim of my disability in my professional life, but I have felt like it in my personal life. And right then and there, I unloaded this shame to him that I had never shared with anyone else before. Now, you may be asking, why did I feel like a victim of my disability in my personal life? Well, I felt like a victim of my disability because at that time when I was having this conversation, I had never had a boyfriend. I had never been in a serious romantic relationship. And I was in my mid-30s and I was mortified by that. And up until about six months before I met this guy, I blamed that reality on my physical disability. Now, I'm gonna spare you the suspense. I know everyone wants to know. Um, things did not work out <laughs> romantically with this guy. But in my short time knowing him, I found something much more important than the boyfriend that I desired. I found my voice. Now, before I was published in the LA Times, talking about dating and disability, um, and before I started my workplace culture consulting business, I was ahead of people for a number of startups on the East Coast. And I was also a recruiter for Deloitte Consulting. Now, as a head of people, I had to influence quite a bit. I influenced my peers to adopt initiatives. I influenced our boards. I told stories with data. You all know this. I was here yesterday, and I heard all of you talking about the various voices when it comes to influence. So when you're trying to influence, you have all of these voices going on in your head, right? Peers, boards, CEOs, founders. But do you know who's the most important voice is? It's your own. It's your own voice and your inner narrative and the story that you're telling yourself. So I had a brain injury when I was eight years old. What started as me falling when I was on vacation in Washington, D.C., quickly escalated a few hours later to me not being able to raise my left arm on my own. So this clump of blood vessels had burst and was bleeding and I eventually had surgery to stop the bleeding. And when I woke from surgery, I was unable to speak, I was unable to walk. And I had extreme muscle weakness all up and down the left side of my body. And after surgery, I had a lot of physical therapy. I had a lot of occupational therapy, a lot of speech therapy. And I'm incredibly lucky. I learned how to do lots of things, like obviously speak with you all today, and walk, and I adapted my walk to learn to accommodate weak, weak muscles. What's most important in my book is I learned how to put my hair in a ponytail with one hand, all right? Voila, there we go. <laughs> um, but you know what I didn't do? I learned all of those things, but there was one thing I didn't learn. 
I didn't learn how to emotionally respond to having a disability. So I grew up in southeastern Virginia, and whether it was a product of the family I was in or the time in history we were at, I didn't go to any type of emotional or talk therapy. And as a result, my emotions overwhelmed me. I didn't know how to handle them. And I was immensely sad at times, I was immensely angry at times. And what I really needed in that moment was I needed a positive influence. I needed somebody who had the tools to push me in the right direction. But I was eight and there was no one. So what did I do? Did I give up? No. I became best friends with my inner voice and together we figured out how to power through. And power through we did. We, I've had tremendous professional success and other successes. But as I talk about in my LA Times column, that came at a cost. And that cost was shutting down a portion of my voice and my emotional identity. So after, sorry, I keep hitting this. After my brain injury, um, decades went by where I couldn't influence myself to move positively in my personal relationships. Telling someone that I loved them or that I wanted to date them terrified me. My voice was completely shut down there. There were other areas of my life where my voice never left me and I was able to influence myself. For instance, I remember as a young girl reveling in arguments with my parents about keyboards. <laughs> and they wanted me to use a keyboard that is made specifically for a person with one able hand. And I said, nope, I'm gonna learn how to use a full keyboard just like everyone else. And when I wanted to move to Washington DC from North Carolina, a lot of people said, oh no, you're never gonna do that. But I knew I could do it. My voice told me I could do it because I had learned to climb stairs again. A little move from North Carolina to DC was nothing. So up to DC I went, and I was a recruiter at first, and then, as a, then I became a head of people for multiple organizations. And as a head of people, I advocated for employees like their voices were my own. And one thing I quickly found out is that I would become especially emotional when I was in a workplace and I felt like an employee was not being seen or heard my voice would actively chat away inside of me, wanting to influence change on behalf of that employee when this happened. But just because my voice was chatting away on the inside doesn't mean that I was always able to influence in the way that I wanted or as often as I wanted. Just as I struggled to move the needle forward in my personal life when emotions were concerned, I struggled to influence in the workplace when I felt so strongly about something. And as a result, there was a lot of crying, probably a little bit too loudly in my office. There were a lot of emails that were read 10 times over before sending, um, and there were a lot of sleepless nights. And I wanna talk to you about one of those workplaces. So picture this, I'm the head of people, our CEO doesn't 
respond or acknowledge to the majority of the emails that I send him. And yes, you're remembering correctly, these are the emails that I read 10 times over. In this office, we didn't have a lot of leadership meetings. The meetings that we did have always involved someone getting talked over. And as a result, a game of telephone played out throughout the organization, where each member of the leadership team would hear something different one-on-one. -on -one. Now, you can imagine how that felt to someone like me, someone who was experiencing trauma with how to use her voice and how to influence. This lack of intentional internal comms really felt unsafe to me, regardless of the CEO's intention. Now, I want to talk to you about another workplace where I was ahead of people. At this workplace, I was paired with a leadership coach. That was the standard offering for everyone on our exec team, because our founders knew everyone needed support. They didn't all need the same support, but everyone needed support. In that office, I also had a supervisor who encouraged me to take an HR speaking engagement. She could have totally done it herself, but she encouraged me to do it because she wanted me to flex my voice. Also in that workplace, and I'm gonna date myself here, this is in the very nascent years of Zoom, and we were all in physical conference rooms, and on those walls, we had inclusive meeting guidelines up, posted in every conference room. Now, was that workplace perfect? No. No workplace is. Did that workplace completely solve the trauma I had around my voice and ability to influence? No. But they acknowledged it by having the tools in place to help me with my personal development. And because of that, I started to thrive. So the LA Times has a circulation of over 600,000 people. Yeah, let that sink in. This is quite the morning when uh, my column came out in their Modern Love column about dating and disability. And it's been about a year since that column was published. And I still have people reach out to me almost every month saying how they feel seen after reading my column. And that is incredibly humbling to me. And I will be forever grateful to the LA Times and the city of Los Angeles for the power and status they have given my voice. I have gone from not fully owning my voice to having the ability to influence thousands of people through this column, through my writing, through my speaking engagements. But in order to do that, I had to reconcile what was going on inside of me. I had to reconcile why I could positively move myself and influence myself in so many directions, but couldn't tell a guy I wanted to date him. Why I could sit with our CEO and go through survey data any day of the week, but when it came to telling him an anecdote about how an employee didn't feel seen, my throat would close up. And in order for me to influence to the best of my ability, I had to come to grips with that, and I had to reconcile that. And my proposal to you all today is that I am not an anomaly. Yes, I am pretty positive there is no one on the planet that moves the way that I do, but I guarantee there are people in your workplaces right now who struggle to speak up and who struggle to influence themselves in a positive direction. 
there could be people who have huge systemic challenges in front of them. There could be people who have the sudden onset of a disability in their 40s or 50s. There could be people who have an invisible disability that they are hiding. And in any and all of these situations, these people may not know how to ask for help and they may not know how to handle the challenges in front of them. I know that I didn't. And my hope is that this is where you and I come in. So, as evidenced by the Chris Paul opener, perhaps, um, it may be clear that I love my alma mater, Wake Forest. Um, Wake Forest is also where Dr. Maya Angelou taught. And one of the things that Dr. Angelou said is do the best you can until you, excuse me, until you know better, and then when you know better, you do better. So if Dr. Angelou were here today, I would tell her that I know a lot more about my voice than I did three years ago. And I know a lot more about my ability to influence and the cost of shutting down a portion of my voice. And my doing better is me telling my stories. Now telling personal stories isn't everyone's version of doing better, nor should it be. But I know it's my way to help others thrive. And as you leave this conference, knowing more about a multitude of topics, I hope you will consider what doing better means to you and to your organizations. And so as I close today, let's hop back to LA for one more last juicy story. <laughs> so about a year ago in LA, I was going to a bar to play trivia one night with a friend. And if you can imagine, this friend was cuter than Mr. NBA Finals. Um, and so we're, we're going to the bar, and we had parked the car, and we're walking to go to the bar. And I had never complained to this friend about curbs or steps or anything of that nature. I had never really complained. But he knew that a couple months prior to us going out this night, I had toppled off of his steps when I was going up on his porch to try and leave something in his mailbox. And, you know, when this had happened, I'm going up the steps and I overestimated my mobility, which is something I do a lot. <laughs> Fell off the steps. He wasn't there, but I related to him afterwards as sort of a badge of honor because I was proud. When I fell, I got up on my weaker leg and that had never happened before. So anyway, I told him the story. He knew about that. Fast forward a couple months. We're going to the bar. We're walking from the parking lot, and I go to step up from the street to the curb. And when I do that, he looks at me and he says, yeah, what, what's up with this place anyway? Like, what's going on here? Where are all the curb cutouts? And after a lifetime, of questioning my visibility in the world, that one comment penetrated me to my core. And I will always feel deeply seen by that person because of that one comment. Now, did he run around LA fixing every missing curb cutout for the rest of his life? <laughs> I have not seen the proof of that yet. <laughs> um, but his version of doing better was he acknowledged 
that the world could do better for people like me. And so as I close today and we go forward, I hope that you all will join me and my friend and that workplace I described in doing better in your, spheres, in your sphere of influence, no matter how big or small. Thank you so much. Communicators at times want to boil the ocean, but beginning with a simple, powerful acknowledgement can leave a lasting impact as a first step. I'll see you next time on the new CCO. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, I hope you'll leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And also be sure to subscribe. That way you'll get a notification every time we drop a new episode. Special thanks to Rivet360, our podcast partner, without whose support we simply would not be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the new CCO.